Oh, it's hot in Wisconsin today. Holy shit. Is it? Like, um, it's it's humid, I guess I should say, yeah. if anything. So, like, uh, uh, I woke up this morning, and I was always told when growing up that if you, like, you should turn your your window fans off in the di- in the morning. Okay. Because then it's just bringing hot air into the house when the day gets hotter. I was like, okay, okay I, can, I, can, I can buy that. So I turned it off, and I was like, this house is just so hot right now. And it's like, <laughs> the sun just came up. It's like, that does not bode well for the rest of the day. Because <laughs> normally the morning is when it's a little bit cooler, and it's nice. Right. So I was like, and I was like, okay, I'll wait for Emma to get up, you know, our, our house guest. And it's like, that way she can close your windows and everything. And, and I'll just sit there and be like, I'm sticky. <laughs> I don't like being sticky, so I'm I just, I just, I closed all the windows that weren't were in her room, and I was like, I'm just gonna turn it on now. Fuck it. <laughs> How's your coffee? Oh, it's it tastes like I spent 20 minutes making it. <laughs> it's that's wonderful. Um, it, a little bit of a spoiler on the movie that we're about to talk about, but one of our favorite parts of the film was when. Um, the restaurant the pizza stromboli guy moved in with them <laughs> and they had the enormous bialetti what's that, a bialetti it's that it's the same kind of coffee maker we use it's like a stove oh, okay. top one where it comes in three parts i believe it oh, is an like, italian it, coffee isn't maker. it kind of like a percolator a little bit kind of i it doesn't have the like i haven't really used percolators but i know they have the thing on top that goes like yeah they they, they percolate they percolate. I, um, whether or not a Bialetti percolates or not, I don't know. Um, I don't think it does. It's, um, but it, it's yeah. Anyway, it's the same kind that we use, but his is like fifteen times bigger than ours. So we were both like, oh, so much coffee. Yes, like, and I, I got I got so much to say about about all that. So I'm I'm not, I, um, I'm gonna wait. But um, how have you been, Nick? I haven't seen uh, you in a while good um our our two youngest had a little graduation ceremony this morning from daycare so we drove over there they got tiny little caps and they got little diplomas it was so damn cute (laughs) it's shit like that that i'm really excited for becoming a dad (laughs) like it's like i'm excited for all this like and maybe you'll feel differently, like when it becomes like an obligation. But like, I'm excited for parent-teacher conferences. <laughs> no, no, like, yeah, I have, I have always been excited about those. Those have never been an, ob- mostly because I find that scenarios are like that is when somehow I'm able to turn on my limited amount of charm okay. and be entertaining. I tend, I tend to get performery, performancy. I yeah. tend to turn into a performer. Um, so, so like I really relish opportunities like that. Plus, I just like the idea of going to school like after dark is always kind of fun and weird. Sitting and in tiny chairs, and, yeah. There's cookies usually. <laughs> uh, it's funny. I like I noticed that about myself a couple of years ago, where I I don't like to necessarily put myself in situations where I have to be a performer. <laughs> um, but I do like when it happens. Like if if we, me and Amanda, go to some. F- a film-related thing in in town or something where people know me, um, you know my filmmaking friends or 
acquaintances, people I've worked with in the past and shit. Yeah. And it's like, I, I'll, I'll just kind of put on this character. <laughs> and it wasn't that until after like we started doing the podcast that I think Amanda even said to me, it's just like, oh, that's your podcast person. That's your podcast <laughs> voice. She uses like, yes, I do. It's just me heightened. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this movie screening that I saw you at. <laughs> Pretty much. Like I was even talking to like the the episode that uh, since we're recording this way in advance, the ep- our most recent episode, our episode of Moonlight that just came out. Um, I'm talking to a good friend of mine from growing up, uh, and I was talking to him about that too. It's just like how I just I I, I just play a heightened version of myself <laughs> on this show. In reality, I'm not this fun to be around. <laughs> now that is not true. <laughs> oh well, because I'm putting on performer Michael for you. Oh. We have hung out in person a whole two times. <laughs> You're right. It was almost three, but then, you know, COVID done did its thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We we, we haven't done a topic episode in a while. And I think yeah, that's something we should yep. rectify. But like even some of those early topic episodes, I think, would be great to revisit Rectum. at some point. <laughs> I said rectify, you jerk. <laughs> um, Sorry, I can't stop thinking about penises and tiny top hats. <laughs> Milady. <laughs> the well, trick o- is a- getting the monocle to stay. Well, it's only one eye, so, you know. <laughs> so, is it a wink or is it a blink? <laughs> yes, I think it's both. <laughs> okay. I-, I think at that point... Um, <laughs> on that I'm- note. On that note, I'm going to do the intro to the show. Um, t- sip of coffee for the working men. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to that people. <laughs> Turn it on just a little bit. Saucy. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Vires and with me, as always, is a man who lives his best life by sitting in a bungalow on the beach eating hot-ass fucking chili. <laughs> Nick Richards. True. True. Yeah. And that, when that scene happens, like, man, that seems like the life right there. On the beach, in a, a hot bungalow. pot of chili, just saved. Yeah. And I, then I started thinking, it's like, is chili a thing they eat in France? <laughs> It's like the French, that opening sequence was like French Jack Johnson. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> Weird. Uh, the intro for this episode is going to be a little different because I actually got lazy and didn't write anything. So instead, since um, uh, this episode was requested by one of our Patreon patrons, Paul Dieter, because um, he had bought the Criterion edition of this movie and loved it so much he wanted to s- discuss it, I am going to actually read off of the back of the Criterion edition. Uh, We are discussing today uh, the film Betty Blue. So, back of the box says, (laughs) When the easygoing would-be novelist Zorg, played by Jean-Hu Englade, meets the temptuous Betty, played by Beatrice Dahl, in her magnetic breakout performance in a sun-baked French beach town, it's the beginning of a whirlwind love affair that sees the pair turn their backs on conventional society in favor of the hedonistic pursuits of freedom, adventure, and carnal pleasure. But as the increasingly erratic Betty's grip on reality begins to falter, 
Zorg finds himself willing to do things he never expected to protect both her fragile sanity and their tenuous existence together. Adapted from the hit novel 37.2 La Matin, which is uh, French for 37.2 in the morning, by Philippe de Jean, or Jean, I think it's just Jean. Uh, Jean-Jacques Benek's art house smash, presented here in its extended director's cut, is a sexy, crazy, careening joyride of a romance that burns with the passion and beyond reason fervor of all consuming love. Ça faisait une semaine que j'avais rencontré Betty. On baisait toutes les nuits. Ils avaient annoncé les orages pour le soir. Also worth mentioning that this film did go on to be kind of a big hit at its time. Its original cut, which was about a little over two hours long, received a, a BAFTA and Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Language Film in 1986. And I think it also won a couple awards for Best Cover, or Best Poster, I should say. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, Philip Jean's novel, 37.2 Le Matin, it was a big hit at the time. Uh, uh, Benex, the director, he actually got a copy of it prior to its release. That that made sense because I was looking at the release dates for these, and I believe the the novel was first published. I, I don't remember in the mid '80s, but the film was released a year later. Yeah, it, it came out pretty fast, and and it's interesting when stuff like that happens. Um, but yeah, this this was a big film for many reasons. Beatrice Dahl, who played Betty, this was her first ever acting role. I believe she had just done some modeling beforehand. And I will say this is a tough role for your first time out the, <laughs> out the gun. It was hefty. Acting. Um, and then Jean-Hugh Anglade, he 
he went on to do a lot of things, but this is this was one of the films that really helped skyrocket him. He would go on to make uh, Nikita with Luc Besson and uh, Roger Avery, who's Quentin Tarantino's writing partner in his early films. He directed a film called Killing Zoe that he was also in. He uh, also was in Leon the Professional and a bunch of other French films. And he th- he had been in films before Betty Blue, but Betty Blue is the reason that he. Um, had a hell of a career afterwards. Okay. So, yeah, it, that, that didn't really quite normally have my, my normal uh, flow to it because I didn't write it, but, you know, I tried to get some of the same stuff in. I, I will I, say it would be a Herculean task to summarize <laughs> this film in in a coherent way. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think the Criterion Collection did a pretty damn good job with their description of it. Yeah. Um. Did it? I I I like your descriptions. They're they're more in depth than back of the box summaries. Um, they have more life in them, and they I think capture why the films are special versus just summarizing and saying which stars are in them, like like gotcha. a back of the box does. Yeah, like I said, I think Criterion does a decent job at that, but you know, once again, they only have so much space for yeah. it. But uh, <laughs> um. I appreciate the know that the people like the effort because sometimes I'll, I'll sit there and I'm like, why am I putting so much effort into this when there are descriptions for this movie everywhere? But then no. I just, once again, I've set a precedent, so I kind of need to just continue off. It's with the it. brand. It's yeah. the brand, baby. <laughs> I, I realize it. Had we could, if we could go back and and change things, man, I would put a lot less work into this. <laughs> <laughs> like I just realized half the time is like. Like just our Moonlight episode that I just posted, I spent three or four days working on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you're dedicated. Selavi, <laughs> yes. So once again, I'm going to mention again that this episode did come to us from one of our Patreon patrons named Paul Dieter. It was when you join the the fifty dollar tier, which I, everything recently just got renamed, so I do not remember what it is called at this moment but with the power of editing i'm gonna let you know <laughs> yep 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 so the 50 dollar p- tier which is the marquee tier um gets you not only everything that you came prior which is a button a sticker bonus episode uh, bonus material um a thank you on the show but you get to either choose an episode or be on an episode and um I had not really thought about, like, up until recently when I was talking to Paul before I came on to record. He asked, it's like, you know, because they've been in that tier for a while now. It's like, do we get only get one episode? And I was like, mm-hmm. I feel like it's only fair that if you've been going on for a while, once everyone's gotten their episode, we'll do another one down the line. Hell yeah. So... If if the long if you stick if you just do the tier once you do the fifty dollar tier you get your episode you drop out that's fine but if you stick around for it we're gonna come up with some nice little good goodies to get that tier. Yeah. Well, know. and something else that I really love about this from from our side of things is I it we we all have our own little bubble of awareness and you know you and I extend that out one person as we're throwing ideas out for each other. Um, but both of the, uh, what was the, the name of the first one? The raid Uh, redemption, the the raid redemption and Betty blue. I had never heard of either of these films and like 
could have very easily gone my whole life without having heard of them before. So I love the fact that I have these opportunities to see things that uh, that excite other people. Yeah, honestly, that's why I love doing this show. Is it's not only just getting to stuff that I feel like I've, we've missed. You know, like I'm, I'm sure I eventually would have seen The Godfather or Gone with the Wind, but it wasn't like this is a pressing film that I need to see. And then I was actually impressed by both of them. But then like times like this, which is like, what is this movie? <laughs> and and then it's even better in in cases where like it becomes one I really like. Like that happens with with me reviewing stuff too. It's like it's a movie I would have never heard of, and now it's one I'm passionate about. So nice. Yeah. So thank you, Paul, for recommending Betty Blue to us. It is currently only streaming on the Criterion Channel. Uh, or you can get it on disc. Uh, every version available currently is the extended director's cut. <laughs> and uh, it is and a, a hefty director's cut. At the same time, though, and maybe just because I broke it up into two viewings, it almost kind of felt like I was watching a TV show. And I was like, there's a part of me that was like, oh, I would like to see more. I actually wanted more of these characters because you kind of get into a a flow with them and, and grow to really, I, at least for me, really like them. And. I, I got sad when I knew it was coming to an end, and because it did not have a happy ending. <laughs> so, you looks like you have something to say, Nick. Something I, I, ruminating I, I, in your brain. I, I, we usually take these this off with a uh, first impressions, and I've been trying to figure out what my first impressions were. Like um, you did just watch it like twenty five minutes. I, I literally like I finished and then I messaged Michael, I'm ready when you are and he's like, <laughs> All right, I have to wait for my coffee and as soon as his coffee was done, we hit record. Um <clears throat> so first thing I'm gonna say right off the bat is I enjoyed those three hours watching yeah. this film. I enjoyed it. Um I think I have a feeling by the end of this episode, I'll have said more critical things than celebratory things. But at the end of the day, I enjoyed it. And that's well, what I want to highlight. It's <laughs> funny. Like, I was even talking to Paul a little bit before we did the episode. And he was excited to, because well, I kind of told him a little bit how I felt beforehand, just because he's been chomping at the bit for a little bit for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, he was like, oh, I'm curious to see what, Nick, what Nick's going to think, because you are a bit more plot and story driven. Yeah. And oh, while this, cool. I wouldn't say this film is necessarily, it, it, I'm not going to say it doesn't have a story, it doesn't have a plot, it, it's me, it take, it's an art house film, it takes it, its time to get to where it's going. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, and I wouldn't even say that's, my one of my bitter issues with it, like I'm okay with. You just slow hated builds. all the boobs. <laughs> it's but those formal penises just really <laughs> did the trick. Um, no, actually, um, I want to actually <laughs> have a intellectual discussion about um, the boobs and the penises <laughs> that we'll get to in a bit. Don't let me forget that topic. Um, I think uh, one of my interests. One of the the thoughts that I had towards the end of the film that I found interesting is, I, at the time, I didn't realize that this was adapted from a novel. Mm-hmm. And I'm, we're, we're in, like, the last house she had uh, just stabbed her eye out. And, and I'm thinking about the structure of this story, how it's played out. I have not, I obviously have not read the novel. Um, You've not? What have you been doing in the right? last 20 minutes? I know. 
Um, but I thought to myself, this film plays out exactly like a great novel that was adapted 100% uh, uh, authentically, you know, tr mm -hmm. true to the novel. And it is an excellent example of why a movie should not be adapted exactly like the book that it's based on. Like, it's a different format that plays differently, and this felt like watching a novel. Okay. It's interesting. A part of me was... I'm, uh, part of me is a little bummed that uh, Criterion did not make the original 120-minute theatrical cut available, because I would... Funny enough, it's like if both versions of this movie would have been on there, I probably would have watched both because I did enjoy this film, like on, on, on multiple levels, on a technical level. I just think it was great, and actually, yep, I think I um, real quick, I'm going to quote uh, Roger Ebert. He actually had a really interesting, uh, quick summary on this film. Uh, he wrote that the film, he said, here's a director taking audacious chances, doing wild and unpredictable things with his camera and actors just to celebrate movie making. <laughs> and it goes back to like, I don't remember what, if we, if me and you had this conversation or, um, if, if it was on an episode of someone else, but I, it just, it reminds, it, no, it was on the Warriors episode when, when Pauline Kale said that it's. Or, you know, it's a movie maker's movie. And that's kind of how I yeah, felt about this. Yeah, yeah. Like, a true, like, a, a cinephile would watch this movie completely different. Or a person who wants to make movies would watch the movie completely different than just, say, some Joe Schmo off the street. Sure. Yep. I, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, I think... While it feels meandering and takes time, I I think that's not really what where the if if you call it a flaw lies, but it, I think it's more of thing, many things got introduced in the film mm -hmm. that didn't have a payoff at the level that it needed to in a film. I think there were small payoffs that worked really well in novels. Um, like because you have it, examples. It, um, I have many. The one that's sticking out in my mind is um, the the albino shop owner Bob, who has darker <laughs> skin than I do, by the way. And I am not yes. an albino. Being um, an, them referring to him as now, it took me a minute to realize that that was the same guy they were talking about. Right. <laughs> so uh, how his wife was trying to cheat on him because her husband wouldn't have sex with her since they came back from having the baby um and that that whole side plot and then you know at the end you hear that argument over you hear over here their argument about how he cheated on her but why wouldn't you have at least slept with me mm -hmm. um it like i i could I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Yeah. But it's too much of a side thing that doesn't connect enough for a three-hour film. And again, if if it were a miniseries or something, when you have time to go back into that tangent mm -hmm. or develop in the main plot more of a connection over to that side plot, I think it could have worked. And I bet in the novel it worked really well. 
Yeah. But yeah. in this format, it felt too much of its own side thing and didn't pull back into the main story enough for it to work for me. Yeah, and I guess that's part of the reason why I, I wish I could see the theatrical cut. And actually, if, if there was a DVD or Blu-ray available of the theatrical cut, there might be. I don't know. I've not looked. I'd probably buy it just because like I liked... I liked Zorg and I liked Betty a lot, and I liked their central story, and I, I and I actually kind of liked these characters in, that interacted with them. But w- I I kind of see what you're saying, and I didn't think about it very much when I was watching it. But after you'd mentioned it again, I'm kind of reassessing. Anytime something would kind of leave the central theme, like the the central story of Betty and Zorg. Were some of the scenes I didn't care for as much, like I, um, you know, the the stuff with with Zorg and the 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 shop owner's wife. It's like, eh. Uh, while I thought some of the stuff between Zorg and Eddie were real, it was really fun and funny. Yeah. I guess it didn't really necessarily. I feel like some of it could have like because I'm not. I'm also not one of those people that feels like everything needs to be plot focused, needs to drive the plot. Because I do believe that some of this stuff is is very character building. But I just I feel like there was a lot of it. And there was also more stuff with Zorg, off doing having adventures than there was with Betty too. So I, I, I maybe like a little bit more of a balance. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll I'll give you another example. Um, the the cross dressing robbery sequence. That caught me completely off guard. Right? Like, you have no build-up. She, she never says she wants more money. She never... They somehow pull money magically out of everything until they actually sell somebody else's piano. Um, which I have more interest... Like, I have a lot of curiosity about that. Like, I noticed that nothing in the film... They never owned anything. I do everything have a thought about that. that the two of them got was either given to them or you know even the cat that just came in through their window one night and then you see it at the end of the towards the end of the film as an older cat with that same collar on like the cat became theirs and what bugs me the most about this entire film and it's not about the filmmaking per se but what i could not stop thinking about whose car was that (laughs) Why didn't they come back for the car? How did were it, they able to just say, "Oh, it's our car now"? I read but an you essay. know it's gonna be, gonna be parked out front still. I read an essay or something that actually confirms that they bought that car and they were just talking about like having stolen it or some shit. I don't that I was confused by all that as well, and I would never have gotten that if I hadn't read it. And even that, I'm like, are you assuming that or because I don't know? But I do have a thought about all of this. I do have okay. a thought about all of this. So. This is this might be the point where we get the where I get the most intellectual about this film. Um, <laughs> I think it's safe to say that the the story that this movie is telling is while it is the plot is about Betty and Zork. I think the story of this film is the selfish the self selfishness of men, whereas. Betty is this perfect sexual being that, you know, is not only fun, but crazy, creative, is making him pursue his passions, is making him these amazing meals and doing all these things for him to get him out of this rut. And 
when she needs him most, he's not really there, not understanding of what's going on with her until it's too late and he's kind of given up the fact that he want that he, he doesn't think he could help her anymore. That's kind of in my assessment of it. You know, he is a, a timid guy who's completely happy pe- having people walk all over him and he's completely happy living in a shitty bungalow, which I'm actually still jealous of his shitty bungalow, <laughs> eating chili and doing nothing. And then this, as a like almost like a, a mythic creature walks into his life who awakens him sexually, awakens him artistically and creatively, and essentially pushes him to leave that life behind and do something. I'm also then wondering if Betty isn't real, and Betty is a figment of his writing. And part of the reason why things seem so surrealistic and crazy, the fact that he pulls a fucking cake out of the trunk, and they dance with it, and and that cake candles were lit and everything, (laughs) and no one questions it, or all these weird plot changes and plot and plot devices that happen but then go nowhere i wonder if is a figment of his writing because especially too because up until the longest time everyone kept rejecting him because of how bad his writing was and i was like maybe he's trying to tell an interesting story and there's all these crazy things that don't have payoffs because he's not he's a writer who doesn't quite know what he's doing that was my thought at the end it's like is betty real or is this all just a figment of his story that he's trying to write I'd I'd have to put more thought into that. Yeah, sexy silence. Yeah, oh, my silence is super sexy. And a lot of sibilance in my sexy silence. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One one thing that I I, I don't think it's saying that it's not true, but probably an important point to add into that conversation is we don't, with, with... I believe two exceptions. We don't see him right, mm-hmm. and I and I would argue that Betty doesn't awaken his artistic passions at she's all. She's trying to. She's she's she, she's trying to get him to write. She believes in his writing. She's sending out his book. He, but I also don't think she's doing that for him. He I never see. he never asks her to. He he doesn't want her to read through those books. He doesn't. Say, oh, I wish I was a writer. Like, he shows no real positive feelings about writing at all. I I took that. I read that more as fear. I don't want you to read that because I'm scared it's bad. I don't want to do this because I'm scared of rejection. That's just the way I read it. That's just... I I don't think that that's inaccurate but what i would what i would put out in the i think the test of that would be to go back through Mm -hmm. and say find the evidence that shows that he does want it in some way because and even as he's trying to help betty towards the end uh, going back to that weird robbery in the middle of nowhere like or or the fact that he wants to sell the piano so badly like he seems like he wants to he's he's excited to be a dad like genuinely he he shows more excitement about being a father than he does about getting published yeah i agree with that i i feel like his motives throughout the entire film have very little to do with writing and more to do with making money and finding a place to live and settling down. 
you know, when when they're out, I guess planning on buying some land. Again, it's one of those things that they didn't set up, and all of a sudden they're on this hillside, even though they had just scraped together a month's worth of of money, and they're like, "Yep, paperwork's pretty much done. What do you think? This could all be ours." Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I, in, in watching it, I did not get the a. I didn't get the impression that he really cared about his writing that much and b i don't think betty was doing any of that for him like there's certainly like early versions of the very problematic manic pixie dream girl in this film right Mm -hmm. the the woman who comes along and she's fun and spontaneous and pulls him Mm -hmm. out of his rut like very problematic but um, but at the same time, I think there's something more interesting about Betty's character because she's not, she doesn't seem from my perspective to be doing that really for him. It seems like she's doing that for her. Yeah, there is definitely a nuance to, to, to her character that um, I feel like the depiction of her character could have been far more problematic with different direction and even different performance on her end. Yeah. Uh, I think both uh, Beatrice Dahl and uh, 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 Jean-Jacques Benex, the director, they do a really interest. They do a lot of really interesting things with her character more so than Zorg's. While Zorg, we see the most throughout the film. Uh, I feel like um, Betty is the one who has, I think, the most meat in the story. But it's it, it, it kind of both my analysis and your analysis there's really no right or wrong with it and that's kind of reason i've always liked these art house films because there's many different ways to view them yeah um and i like that i like not having a clear-cut answer because even even benick someone asked him like on 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 some interview if if betty wasn't real and he kind of says what does it matter like (laughs) um you know being very non-committal about it which i think is sometimes the best way to do these things um but i think ultimately what both me and you are are coming to to terms with in our own different ways is how Betty and Zorg are not right for each other, but they, <laughs> and they are both bo- need therapy. <laughs> they both need therapy, and they are not right for each other, but they so badly want to be right for each other yeah. that they're trying to find things to latch on to in both of them. Betty views Zorg as this you know tremendous writer who's just this un undiscovered talent and zorg views betty as being this you know this white collar or this blue collar stay-at-home wife that is there to cook for him and to sleep with him and all these other things and to make his life more interesting and i and because of that neither one of them are picking up on the on the clues of that this isn't working zorg in his own way, kind of refuses to see that there's something wrong with Betty. He knows that she has these mood swings and these 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 outbursts, but he kind of, he tries to explain them away. And Betty refuses to pick up on the fact that Zorg constantly tells her that the writing was just something he was doing. And I think he even says in one of his narrations, he didn't he didn't go out there to write. He right. he, yep. he wrote because he was bored. Yep. To day. to like yeah, escape the banality of it all. And now, um, after after hearing your description of it, I'm almost kind of reassessing the ending, where like where he picks up a, you know, he 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 picks up a pen and paper, 
uh, near the middle of the film where when they're staying at that hotel, and I just love that he just gets up completely buck-ass naked in the middle of the night and just turns on the stove and is going to write. I'm like, okay. Yep. <laughs> uh, but then in the end, too, and I almost feel like, like wondering, is like, are you doing this for yourself or are you doing it once again for Betty? Yeah. So there's, there's a lot you can read into this film. Or, and I think, or if he was... If he originally wrote that novel to to escape what he felt was a not great situation, right? That's mm-hmm. how he kind of described it in his... When he starts writing again, that signifies that something about him is wanting to... He's, he's not liking the situation he's in, and writing is his escape for that. Yeah, and actually, Benix, the director, he... he uh, which I had to look up the pronunciation of that because it seemed uh, wrong. Benix, because uh, I kept thinking, it was like, is it Benoit, Ben Benoit, or something? I thought, is the is is it supposed to be a hard X, Benix? But in everything I've heard people talk pronounce his name, that's how they say it. So okay, um, but he even says, you know, when making the film, that he 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 likes when things aren't so obvious. There is a shot where it everything is made. To- to let people think during a short time that he's dead. Because when he's lying on, on the floor with the chili, I mean, cooking, I mean, his hand is like this, and there is a stain, red stain, which is in fact a pack of chips, which is red. I like things that are not clear. I like the idea of suggestion, not saying everything. I think cinema sometimes is much too much explained, you know. To me, it's the reincarnation of Betty, but it's the white page, you know, and there is a an explanation and then it is not imposed with this movie but it's all about the writing process and this is Philippe's John the famous white page but also the relation with cats uh, which are the companion of, of writers strangely Zorg starts to write when Betty disappears. She may be just a fantasy. She doesn't exist. But in the meantime, you know, it is not like in some films, at the end you discover she does not exist. No, it's a suggestion. Again, I wasn't even aware that this was a book prior to, or a movie, I had never heard of any of it, so I'm very illiterate when it comes to this, but Watching it reminded me, the story reminded me a bit of uh, A Farewell to Arms, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm familiar with it, but... The way that these two people who are together, even though they really shouldn't be moving from, from like, this very kind of vagrant lifestyle of moving from, like, temporary shelter to temporary shelter... Um, that that was kind of the the vibes I was getting. Mm-hmm. That's where I was able to anchor it in my reading history. Yeah, and it almost feels like three very distinct 
like for lack of a term acts of their life you know yeah. where you know because they have three big three big company moves in, in this <laughs> in this film um you know the beginning i think the the, fir- the first act at the beach is very whimsical and and sun bleached and colorful and very comic booky the um, the even the colors that they're painting those bungalows mm-hmm. that they're forced to do um and you can see that repetition of the blue being highlighted um throughout the the film mm-hmm. and it's interesting too because like um um the, the Benix and Luc Besson and a couple other directors, they were part of a really short-lived uh, cinema uh, time period in cinema called the Cinema de Luc, which was a almost like, uh, I, I don't know the proper way to describe it, but it was a very visual focused, more so than anything else, style of filmmaking where you were inspired by pop art and comic books. And, okay. And I think that opening section of the film really shows that off. Um and but I actually find myself thinking back towards the middle half of the film more. The section where they're almost living this bohemian lifestyle in this hotel that no one seems to be staying at, and <laughs> you know, cooking in an industrial sized kitchen, and then for some reason start working at a, a Stromboli place in right. France. And and then what, one thing I found interesting about this film is I've got years of cinema knowledge in my brain and, and story conviction, especially. Uh, a story convention, especially uh, tropes, and anytime like when, and this film was really good about subverting my expectations, because like you know when when they go stay with Betty's friend at the hotel, I cannot remember what her name is, uh, Lisa. They go stay with her, and um, you know, I feel like I kept thinking, oh, it seems like Lisa and Zorg are getting very close. And I was like, oh, it's probably going to be that they're going to sleep together or something or, mm-hmm. you know, and it didn't happen. I was like, right. oh, they're just, yeah. per- they're just, they have this, cl- they have this bond. They have this friendship, but it didn't, didn't turn into anything. Or when Eddie came into the picture, because I was like, oh, Eddie, I'm sure is going to be a slime ball or something. <laughs> and he was a sweetheart. He was a really nice guy. <laughs> the, the scene where he crumples up that rejection letter and shoves yes. it in his mouth we were cheering like yeah boy you got his back yeah and it's <laughs> that like, is oh, a no, pal he's right actually, there he's a really nice guy you know like betty stabs a patron in his fucking restaurants and he's like eh, you know it happens yeah, it happens and then he's um, like oh my mom died why don't you stay in the house <laughs> yeah well, why don't go you ahead knock down the, the walls <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, I appreciate that every time that I, I kind of felt like I knew what was going to happen to one of these characters, it was it changed a little bit. And it, to me, that felt, just because it doesn't happen in film very often, it felt a little more realistic than, yeah. you know, had these events played out. the and you, know, you just subvert expectations a little bit and things feel a little bit more realistic because it's things like this that you can't plan. So that way, like later on when the shopkeeper's wife was hitting on Zorg, I was like, oh, I was like, oh, that's what I was expecting to happen earlier in the film. It <laughs> seems a little bit more sudden now because when I thought it was going to happen, it didn't yeah. here i thought it was going to happen with this woman he's spending in close quarters with and he's always fucking naked in front of and they're openly <laughs> talking about sex and nothing no instead it was a stranger it was a complete stranger it was like i i i don't know i i found myself appreciating those things and like uh we we hit this crescendo moment in that middle part of the film because like the first you know even betty had some crazy behavior in the in the first act of the film but it just it just felt like passion to me 
because I, I didn't reread the back of the box before I watched it, so I was just kind of experiencing yeah. things that happened. I had some some issues with how they pres- I don't know how much of it was a victim of its time, how much of it was part of what they were trying to say, um, but so much of Betty's craziness put primarily in the first half to two th- in the first hour or two of the film, like they'd. When when his initial, when his beach bum landlord uh, like was lifting up her dress and then she pushed him mm-hmm. like that seems really re- a really reasonable reaction to me to push him yeah. over that ledge and and everybody throughout the movie was calling her crazy and she wasn't always doing things that were crazy you know no that, no um, it's, some of it seemed oh, like. She, She's a, it's that time of the month kind of comments that, well, at that the same really time, me. we have to think about, we don't know what, what, what social cues are like in France. I don't know what it's like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, maybe they, they don't ever have these type of outbursts and you just have to like sit there and accept it. So when, a, when a girl doesn't accept a, a creepy dude looking up her dress, it does seem crazy. Yeah. Um, um, and I, and I believe that there's some truth in that, uh, particularly with this, like whenever she would have an, an outburst mm-hmm. and somebody would, that mostly Zorg would grab her and start slapping her. <laughs> and and not just like yes. hey like just smacking the shit out of her like yeah it wasn't like the, it wasn't like the moonlight share like snap out of it, it was yeah like, no you know, it was beat like the fuck out of you I, I'm gonna beat the crazy out of you it's like all right well it's <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> oh, but shit. but that's acceptable people weren't saying Zorg is crazy you know no, people were no. saying Betty was crazy. Well, I think probably some of it has to come down to the fact that she is an outspoken female. You know, yeah, that's probably I, a big part of it. Like, but, I think you could tell this story from Betty's perspective today and make a really mm-hmm. interesting film about, you know, being stuck in those social, yeah. those problematic social norms. For, for me, what kind of caught me is though the first act, act of the film was like this passionate love story. That's kind of the way it was presented to us is this yeah. passionate love story. Then she burns down the bungalow, which is a beautiful fucking shot. Um, <laughs> and they escape off to uh, uh, Paris or some shit. And uh, they go stay with a friend. And it becomes this bohemian lifestyle where it's all four of them having a good time. You know, fucking with olive salesmen and all this other <laughs> shit. Making these these torpedo drinks or whatever. And they're all interacting with people and having a good time. And then Betty's kind of like illness starts getting worse. And there's a moment, like, I don't remember, like, it, it, that was, for me, for, for, I kept thinking it's like, the most fun section of the film, because everything seemed light and breezy, for the most part. Yeah. But then, that was also the part of the film where I realized, like, this movie's not going to have a happy ending. Because it's like, <laughs> this all this is fun it. is going to come crashing the fuck down. Yeah. And it does, once Eddie's mother dies, and they go stay at this little village, and then it, go, it goes from being you know betty and zorg to betty zorg lisa and eddie to just back to betty and zorg and it's like eddie or not eddie zorg is still trying to like have fun of people and show how charismatic he is and he's friends with bob and he's kind of friends with bob's wife but i don't um and <laughs> all these other things and betty she stops it she stops socializing i don't know if you noticed that but she stops socializing with people yeah and she just becomes he- Sorry, continue. Uh, even when um, Lisa and mm-hmm. Eddie uh, Eddie come to Eddie. visit, 
she's she's distant at first yeah un- until and then falls into the river. but then you know she kind of pulls her out for a second and they're splashing each other um yeah, but, it's almost like betty was this inciting incident that got zorg living life um but they wanted two different things out of this life yeah uh, so that's that's what I was thinking. It was like there was just a moment. It's like you know, amongst all these goof, these this goofy fun that's in this that's in the second part of the film, you know, uh, the you know the middle part of the film. It's also when I'm like, this is not going to be a good <laughs> ending. I'm having too much fun for a movie like this to know this is going to end. This is not going to end well. One one of my favorite elements of the like little moments of the film was when the olive salesmen were and they're you know messing with them and talking really fast and stuff, and then they slam the olive briefcase closed and says yes. they'll take them all. Who keeps up all those olives? I don't in a know. Briefcase? And also, my favorite part about that too is like you can't have the briefcase. I'll buy the briefcase. Yeah. <laughs> and then Eddie's fucking tie, his his black tie when his yeah. mom. And that's the picture I sent you. And I was like. <laughs> It, it's very much, and I noticed a lot of foreign films because you know their, their sensibilities are different in in other countries. So you don't quite, it's you don't always quite pick up on their 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 social cues. It's yeah, like, there are right. so many times in this film, I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be laughing or, or not yes, right now. I, I agree, and I and I associated it the same way. Like I I have a sense that I would appreciate the subtlety of these interactions much more if I understood the culture that. Mm-hmm. But it's at the same time. It's also kind of like what the reason that say a lot of Coen Brothers films leave people kind of feeling uneasy because you know during Fargo you don't know if you're supposed to be laughing at these situations and it makes people feel uneasy. And oh, that's kind nope, of just gonna barf. Yeah, and it, that, that's kind of how I felt watching this movie. And there's there's countless other examples too. But it's yeah. like you know there's so many times like this is sad but also really funny. And there's even times too like where they were you know where Eddie was super sad and they one of them made a comment or something and he, the, there was like an alarm. Song went off as an His alarm, phone, yeah, and they're kind of all trying not to diddle but diddling. And Eddie's yeah. like, It's not funny, it's not funny, but you can tell that he's like, He's not mad, but he's also trying to bring them back, yeah, into like, that space that character. he doesn't want to leave, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, like, just the, the weirdness of this film is honestly what kept me going, like, a couple things. And I don't like, I thought, I thought the film was very confidently directed, yeah, like, very, like, I. There was never a point in this film where I, I was watching and think, I never thought this wasn't an intentional. Like I just felt, I, it almost felt like every frame of this film was made with this great intention. Yeah, and I, and it's it's one of those things that I can't explain to an outsider why I feel that. The only reason I can only say that by just having experienced myself on set, having directed stuff, it's just a feeling that I get. It's just like I'm sure as you know, a lot of writers can get a feeling for when something was improv versus when something was actually written. Like there's you just you don't know, and I could be wrong. You know, this entire film could have just been like on the fly. Fuck, we don't know what we're doing. But it doesn't <laughs> feel that way. There's a confidence to this film that I I found myself really gravitating towards, and especially the fact that a, such a great performance came out of a a, a, a new actress who would, would then go on to become big name actress in 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 french film and would even star in a jim jarmusch film okay um and then uh i found myself just like staring at the frame where so many so many frames in this film just felt like it could have been a painting and a big part of that and that's because of the cinematographer jean francis uh, i think it's robin um 
the film was gorgeous and it just had a very simple style to it that I, I find myself gravitating more towards with the widescreen photography, the simple, almost um, minimalist lighting styles. I, you know, it, it, it was showing off in a very naturalistic way, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. So uh, like I, there was so much that I was enjoying about this film. Yeah, I, I think as we started talking about um, French culture and and how that fits in, I think that's a good time to actually segue into this um, <laughs> boobs and penises conversation that I wanted to have. Um, <laughs> you, again, you like anybody on our Facebook page <laughs> saw our text chain. You, uh, I went into it knowing that there was going to be a lot of nudity. Um, and I, I am assuming it is part of just it, that it is a result of French and more broadly speaking, European culture. I have not seen a lot of European cinema. Um, at least, you know, I've, I've seen more big budget stuff that's intended to go out to more of an international audience, but, um, seeing so much nudity and sex in this film was, I, I really appreciated it and not for the like, ooh, boobs and penises reason, like boobs and penises, boobs and penises. <laughs> For the last few years, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, as as I'm thinking about, hopefully someday, God writing again. Um, sex is such an important part of the human condition. Mm-hmm. And in America, we don't like talking about it. No. And when we do, when it isn't, when when it is in film, it is. For the exclusive purpose of of sexuality and and uh, commerce, like quite marketing, you know, like yeah, trying to get people to come to see the boobs to so that they'll pay money for the ticket. Um, and I I really enjoyed how much of the nudity in this film was not sexual. They used it to express vulnerability. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Casu- uh, the casual nature of these friend-based relationships, um, and some of it was sexual, but also like this, I, I am fighting back a bit in my head against kind of how how you were initially framing it as this sexual being entered Zorg's life. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to have good sex in the beginning don't get me wrong but it wasn't like let me lure you into you know let me show you this mm-hmm. this hedonistic lifestyle or something it felt like they just really hit it off in bed <laughs> mm-hmm. and maybe they should have talked about things outside of well, that he, and well, failed to well, her his like first line to her is you're here too early so it's like they, they're not here to talk <laughs> right well and the the um I think one of his first voiceovers is we had sex every night that week and a storm was coming. Yeah. Or something to that nature. It's like, and that certainly set the tone that they're, 
early relationship was based solely on, on <laughs> there sex. is a split sec i hate to admit it but like it, you know we all have these dumb thoughts and it's like a storm's coming it's like it doesn't look like rain i was like oh <laughs> oh, oh it's not that kind hey, of storm. not that kind of storm <laughs> it's very clearly gonna snow <laughs> that's a joke isn't it dad um but i i really i really in i found myself much more comfortable around the nudity and sex in this film than I am in the sex and nudity in a lot of American films. Yeah, well, because there's never a point where where anyone goes, oh, uh, uh, put some pants on, Zorg, <laughs> or anything like that. It's, you know, it's, it's you know, and he, his boss wa- walks in on them. He's more commenting the fact that you're here with someone, yeah. and it sounds like he's not supposed to be. It's yeah. his place. Um and then, like, you know, later on when he's naked in writing, you know, Lisa doesn't comment. Oh, she just, only thing she, she said, you're not she cold? She kind of gives a, a little look. Like, she, she acknowledges that he's nude. But it's not like, oh, goodness, yeah. Yeah, it um, doesn't get, it doesn't, never gets weird. For, for a film that has, that outside of pornography, probably the most nudity that, of any film that I've seen, um... It was somehow also less gratuitous. Yeah, like I've seen which you was, know, less nudity in films and thought it was more gratuitous. Yeah, yeah. but it all comes down to the framing. Um, uh, actually, uh, a friend of mine, Josephine, who was on the audition episode, her and I were talking about this one time about how nudity in films is not very even. You know, you know, you can show a naked woman and it's no problem. You show a naked man and it's like, oh, my eyes type of thing. And <laughs> we had more peeing on the screen. <laughs> there you go. Uh, we, this conversation came up one time because I was showing a film for a film festival that opened that the reason I wanted to show it before I even saw the movie had a review on Letterboxd that said this movie's got more dick than a gay porn. I'm like, well, <laughs> you've just caught my interest. And it, and it was like disappointing amounts of dick actually compared to like, say something like this. Yeah. Where, and then I was, I was kind of, I was saying I wanted to make a t-shirt that said hashtag free the dick. Um, just because I also agree that there's not enough, there's it's, it's a, an imbalance in representation. Exactly. And then she yeah. was saying a big part of it, like, for her is not just showing a penis on the screen that's that's nothing uh she's like it's how you frame it and how and i think that's really comes down to what counts as exploitive versus what's natural you know the the focus of that scene wasn't him being naked you know whereas it comes down to why are they naked Mm -hmm. and and i don't think that nudity should get like a particularly more thought process. I think everything on screen, you should consider why it's there and should have yeah, a reason and, for and, being there. And her nudity and, as and, well never. Yeah, her nudity as well never really felt like it was there for tantalizing reasons. It felt yeah. like it was like she's just more comfortable naked. Yeah. And so. uh, early, early on, it was part of how um, uh, it demonstrated how men were treating her. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I, I, again, they both need therapy, <laughs> a lot yeah. of therapy, but that doesn't mean that there weren't, you know, there, there are reasons that how you're treated throughout your life impacts your mental health. And, and, yeah. um, the, again, the, that first time that we saw her outburst, um, 
Well, I guess the the second because the first one was the paint on the car, um, <coughs> and and that landlord was asking for something unreasonable out of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when when he tries to lift lift up her her nightgown or dress or whatever it was, um, and she was reacting to that in a defensive mm-hmm. way, in a way that she should have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. No, I I think I, again I felt much more comfortable comfortable being around being in a viewing environment with all of that nudity and sex. It it felt very much in tune with this kind of slice of life style of film making where you're watching them in their daily lives for much longer than you spend with people typically in a film or at least typically in an american film and actually you mentioned the slice of life aspect of it actually kind of segues into something i want to talk about if you're done with your yeah your penis yep. and boob conversation um <laughs> there were no top hats tiny top hats nope, nope disappointed uh but you did see what i meant it was it was, it was very classy very classy done. well the mona uh, lisa was hanging up yeah exactly <laughs> um so the slice of life mentality because like when i I didn't know how long this movie was when I first put it on, and I was like, "Oh shit, three hours! I should probably warn Nick." <laughs> three hours and, and five minutes. <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's not that like a long length turns me away or anything. I just I, I just have to plan for it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I, take I'm a half not, day off work. I'm not opposed to long movies. I'm not opposed to slow movies. It, yeah. You know. That being said, a slow, boring movie I don't like, but that's or that's any boring movie. Yeah, that's a different conversation. Yeah. Um, what I found interesting was like, okay, this movie's long. Oh, this is the director's cut. It's longer. And then I kind of went down a rabbit hole of looking into why. Um, Usually director's cuts are longer unless you're John Landis, who actually wants to make his director's cut shorter. (laughs) Um, um, But I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then the other version is not available. And the director had always planned for this movie to be long. So... um, Jean-Jacques Benex, he is a filmmaker, obviously. He 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 started off working in commercials and as an assistant director. He made a movie to, before Betty Blue called Diva, and then he made another movie after Diva called Moon in the Gutter. And Moon in the Gutter was was panned by everyone, um, despite the fact that it won some awards, but because the movie was four hours long. And he had i don't remember i have not seen moon in the gutter so i couldn't speak for what his reasoning for it was but he had a reason for why he wanted to make the movie long just like he why he wanted to make betty blue long but then he got scared when he was making betty blue and be like well my last film did so poorly and i barely got this movie made because of how long it is let me cut it down to two hours and his producer at the time was like yes i think that's for the best option uh though if you ask the cinematographer he thinks the two-hour version is amputation of the original film which is such strong wording but the reason he wanted betty blue to be three hours long is because he while this is a film about mental illness and we can have conversations about its depiction of mental illness i've read both sides of it. some people think that it's a it's a it's a heightened but still good depiction of mental illness and some people say it's not but one thing he wanted to do and i feel like if american director would have made this film this is what they would have done. He didn't want the he didn't want the film just to be like, oh, here's Betty, she's sexy and she's she's interesting. Oh, and she's crazy, and then her just to be montage after montage of her doing crazy things. He wanted right. to show that even at the height of when she's at her worst, 
that there's these scenes of normalcy, that there's these scenes. He wanted it to breathe in between these in these heightened moments to show that it's not just, oh, once the flip, the switch flips, I'm, I'm paraphrasing some of this, like once it gets bad, it's just terrible the entire time. He wanted to show that she's happy at, or they, they can have a happy times in between all this, this chaos. And I, th- I think that's part of the reason I kind of responded to this film because it wasn't, it didn't go for the low hanging fruit of, oh, when she's crazy, she's crazy type of thing. It's, I, I you know. think the film is much more interesting in between those crazy, break, you know, moments. I think it's all of that stuff in the middle there that is where the movie works the best and is, um, you know, working at its mm-hmm. optimum level. Yeah, so like that—that that was the reason he wanted this to be a longer film. Um, and once he got the opportunity to go back in and do the director's cut and recut the film, uh, that's his preferred version of the film. And I guess I feel like the film would still be pretty, have an interesting score, good cinematography, and all these things if he would have done it the the more American way of showing mental illness. <laughs> but I think because, for lack of a better term, he did it in a very French way. <laughs> <laughs> of, you know, like, oh, you're, you, you know, you just stabbed a woman at the restaurant. Cool. Let's, you know, take a seat. Let's take a, let's take a little break and have some cheese and some, a little bit of wine, and then we'll go back to that later. <laughs> I think the most French moment in the scene is when they poured coffee in, in the. It was actually the morning after that ledge stabbing scene, and they broke off a piece of baguette and dunked <laughs> it in their coffee. I was funny enough. I was asking, well, because uh, our our house guest right now, Emma, she's she's she studies French in in school, and um, I asked her. It's like, well, one, she said, it's like I never I never got baguettes. She's like, they're just so hard to eat. <laughs> and now, now I'm wondering, like, maybe you didn't you weren't dumping them in coffee. Well, uh, yeah. That's... But then, like, I had to ask her, is like, is it a thing for people to drink their coffee out of bowls? Uh, Reina is familiar with those uh, latte bowls. Latte bowls, I believe okay, we were calling asking, it, It's like, a when, thing. When it first happened, I was like, okay, maybe Zorg just doesn't have coffee cups. But then I was thinking, it's like, well, he never asks where your cup, so I don't have any. But I was like, okay, maybe he just doesn't have any. But then they go to their second location, and they're drinking out of bowls. It's like, well, they, they, they are staying in an industrial-sized restaurant. I'm sure they have coffee cups. But then once we got to the third location, they're still drinking out of bowls. It's like, okay, no, that's just the no, thing. They're just drinking out of bowls. <laughs> It was really disturbing. It was really upsetting me. Excuse me, miss. There seems to be a mistake. I believe I ordered the large cappuccino. Hello! Look at the size of this thing. It's practically a bowl. It's like Campbell's cappuccino. <laughs> My size. Please. Aidez-moi. This is going to be a, uh, a light episode for clips because they're all in French. We. <laughs> oui. uh, we. Oui. Uh, I guess... So, I think you definitely liked the film. You didn't dislike the film. You do have yeah, cri- you do no, criticism I, on it. I, I th- enjoyed all three hours of this. I but more often than not, I was shouting "What?" Yeah. <laughs> or "What?" And I had no idea where it was going. I've, well, and that's one of the things I really liked. Uh, is that I had no idea where it was going. I feel like I might have liked it a little bit more than you, um, but. I, I have not dusted this off in almost a month. What was your? Did you have a thrill house moment, Nick, in this film? Uh, like the moment that, like, you know, I, I, I guess I should redescribe the thrill house moment. It's the, yeah, I always described it as a way that a point in the film where you're like, I'm in. 
but I think it's also more that, you know, because there could be anti-Thrill House moments. Like, it's the point in the movie where you decide you're not going to turn it off. Like, what's okay. the moment that grabs you? Because okay. I've had I've had anti-Thrill House moments where, m- movie moments where I'm like, okay, I'm done with this movie. <laughs> I think... I, I can definitely give you an, a time frame. I don't think I can pin down a moment. Um... But it was somewhere between when they started working at the at Eddie's Stromboli restaurant and when it's also it was deep into the film. Yeah, no the 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 first act I was I I think I was really the the first act I was waiting for the moment that the treatment of mental illness and and misogyny and. Uh, a lot of those I was waiting for, and Manic Pixie Dream Girl issues mm-hmm. like I was waiting for those to all appear so that mm-hmm. I could kind of get past it and yeah. and all three of them were in there like there's definitely problematic elements of this film I wonder if they're dealt with differently in the novel if it's if those things were brought up to comment on them but like obviously at the, the same time is, but I'm not sure how much the treatment of somebody with mental illness is versus this seems more like a story about um, people who believe they love each other when really they're in the relationship for themselves, not the other person. Yeah, and it's it's also 1986, and it was a novel written it, by a dude. So Right, and so the, the first act... There was no Thrill House moment there because I was waiting to get on the other side of all of those issues that I knew mm-hmm. I would have. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it was somewhere in that, like, bohemian, the four of us are living together and eating olives and throwing garbage in people's pizza uh, <laughs> to where they were at Eddie's mother's funeral and and started, and they decided to live there. It was somewhere in there that yeah. I'm like, okay... I'm starting to get my bearings. I've gotten over the issues that I have with, or at least put them aside enough to see what else is there. Yeah. Um, somewhere in that pocket. For me, the moment that like really just caught me was the bungalow going up in flames. Cause for some reason I just didn't see that happening. <laughs> um, but then like, it's funny, like wikipedia has betty blue listed as a french erotic psychological drama and i was like that seems like that it is an american who who framed this as an erotic film yeah yeah (laughs) and i like psychological drama it's like that's that seems way more intense than this movie really was but i I think that i think one of the issues that i i think this could have been a very interesting commentary on mental health if they had dealt with it differently earlier on in the film mm-hmm. and and some of it you know they uh, we talked about that whole slice of life we're saying how things are ordinary and not and then she'd have these just little spike outbursts and sometimes there was enough context to say all right that was a little bit of an overreaction maybe but also she's not the guilty one you know mm-hmm. she's not the the only reason why this situation is problematic and then people would start slapping her and then the scene would be over it's like that that was not in my opinion a good way to explore mental health yeah 
issues. And but then I also wonder if the, if I don't it doesn't sound like they were necessarily looking to explore mental health. I feel like it was a situation where the director wanted to show I feel like he kind of wanted to comment on mental health, but then with based on the source material that it was more so just something and I'm just inferring. Yeah, right. it, it was something that was just it, that that it was there in the story, but the book wasn't commenting on it. So it felt like the director was trying to add some, st- you know, by the fact that him wanting to make the film longer to show the normalcy of it and these other things. I feel like it's almost like two different perspectives of why they are doing this. And, but at the same time, too, it's like uh, Ben X, the director, he also talks about like how he was reading when he got sent the copy of the book and he was reading it and he was really into it and was like oh i want this to be my next film until he got to the 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 eye stabbing scene and he threw the book across the room and said fuck no really you know but then something about it kept bringing him back to it and he i i'm i might be misquoting him but i think he said his aversion to that scene is what made him want to do it okay interesting so it's like you know they they to me it sounds like uh Jean, the director, and Benex, they had two different reasons, like two, two different things yeah. that they're trying to comment on. And I don't think, and, I, I don't think the, it hurts the film necessarily, but it does, I don't feel like some of these things are as um, flushed out as much as they could be. Yeah. And, and I'll also add that I think her mental health issues that she had from the point that, um, her pregnancy test came back negative through to the end of the film felt much closer to something that could start to be an interesting yeah like that was that was kind of the snowball moment where things kept snowballing from there um but that being said it's one of those things that for me at least with this film is narrative problems aside for me this is the type of film that i i don't it's it's not the it's not the type of, of film I sit down and I'm I watch to be blown away by its story or something like that. Like I for me this is a this is a film that I sit down that I just kind of experience. Um it's it's yeah. very in, in a similar vein to why I like a lot of the films by Nicholas Winding Refn, you know, who did Drive and Only God Forgives and the Neon Demon. You know, you don't to, you don't go to his film necessarily for story, it's for everything else that kind of comes out of it. You know, it's a, it's a movie that you feel. And I think that's with art house cinema. That's, you know, since so much isn't told to you, it's a it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure type of film. Sure. <laughs> Where you get to choose the... Ver- since it's not said. You get to choose kind of what you believe. And yeah, I think what that's, you take away from the film, what you take out of the story. And I think that's, you know, the key to something like film theory. Where, you know... I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure people have written essays on fucking, uh, you know, Avengers: Infinity War, but that so much of that <laughs> film is spoon fed to you. There's no theory involved with yeah. it. You know, there's so there's a lot going on in a movie like Betty Blue, but also yes. at the same time, not. I it's, well, I think that there is a lot going on, and mm-hmm. and that is part of why I enjoyed not only the three hours of watching it, but I suspected I would enjoy discussing it, and I'm, I'm. Glad that the conversation went in the direction it did because I think I was able to kind of explain how I felt about the film in a way I was worried I wouldn't be able to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll go back to kind of what I said earlier on in the discussion. I think where this 
long intentionally vague at times storyline had issues is when they started going off on tangents mm-hmm. and then they would just jump back into the main storyline and yeah. it left it left several of those chords just out hanging without purpose yeah yeah um and uh i i would have gotten more out of it and been more excited about the film if they found a way to bring those little I, I think quality and worth exploring tangents back in. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, it actually, um, it, it's also very interesting, too, having just done a... There, there's films that I've watched in between, but it almost kind of feels like I did a, a double feature with Moonlight and then this, where they do have similar qualities. Okay. Where, you know, Moonlight is a, an American filmmaker inspired by... European and European and foreign cinema. Okay, and it's he he takes a lot of the things that I say I'm I'm really enjoying out of something like Betty Blue and incorporating it in an into ways that Westerners tell their stories. If that makes yeah. sense. Um, so it was actually kind of an unintentional, interesting double feature. But going back to what I was saying a little bit about like film theory, we we discussed a little bit in the in the Moonlight episode that you know when it comes the thing I've always loved about cinema over other art forms is there's so much going on, there's so much going on in the frame. You know, it's not just plot delivery devices like you know that that's and i think we've talked about this that's always been one of my issues with binging i feel like so many people binge because they just tell me everything that's going to happen and they're not really appreciating the art that goes into making it yeah where uh you know or how many reviews have you read be like everything in this film was great but i hated the story so fuck this movie it's like well then you can't really say it's you know, like a film like this, it's a film that I go, I feel like I'm going to go back to because there's so much to experience and look at and feel yeah. and learn from. I, I think there's still more to explore in this film than what I picked up on a single watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's I think that's a testament to the film as well. While we both liked the film, um, while you did have some issues with it, it's a film that I don't think you'd be opposed to revisiting. No, no. I'm, I'm actually particularly interested in watching the theatrical cut to see how it compares. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I would also revisit the the director's cut because, again, I, there is definitely stuff in there that, that I want to kind of uh, see if my initial thoughts are validated or countered. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our uh, just you and I talking about this has enlightened me on some things um particularly how um how the film is really about two people in a relationship who both see the other person as somebody very different than who they actually are mm-hmm. and how they're not really listening to who that other person is yeah um i you know that that is something that i didn't really get out of watching it myself but we explored it and and further mm-hmm. watching i know i'd get more out of yeah, and actually, um, a little bit of a segue, but still about the film, um, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, said I'm always, away. I'm I'm always really, you know me, I'm always really into the music of yeah of movies, and that's something that I gravitate towards. And I love when I can when I find out this piece of information because then it it almost like excites me because like I I'm always then questioning like hmm that's an interesting choice did it work? The music for this film was composed before the movie was made. Oh. 
Interesting. Jean-Jacques Benex called me for his film called The Moon in the Gutter and it was a flop in France and we lived this flop together. And then he came up with this project of Betty Blue, which is called 37 le matin in French, adapted from a novel by Philippe Chan. And he came to me and said, listen, maybe we, are, we were wrong on The Moon in the Gutter. Now we're going to go to a very small ensemble, just, you know, a rhythm section. What could we do? And I read the script. I remember reading the script with him and going, you know, through every single piece. And he said, do you want to do the music before? Let's do it. And the script, there was a saxophone player playing around, you know, just close to the merry-go-round. The... So I said, well, let's do a theme with a saxophone. And I did this theme with a saxophone in a kind of ballad. And the same theme, I did it as a samba also. So when they went to the, for the shooting, the actors, the cinematographer, the DP, the, 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 the set people, everybody, everybody knew the music. And this music has, in some, in some, somehow fed the shooting and the actors. So it was to me one of the most achieved and fruitful collaboration that the music that usually comes always at the end of a project is essentially part of the project. But you know that's how Leona used to do his his script, his, okay. um, his his shoot his films. But what I find really interesting is there's almost like this symbiosis that comes from that that I'm noticing. Not only does it gives you a chance for your actors to kind of feel tonally what you're going for before the edit, you know, to kind of yeah. get in mood of what you're trying to do. But one of my favorite scenes in this entire film comes very late on in the film. Um, it's after Eddie, it's during Eddie's mom's funeral and Zorg goes downstairs and just starts playing around some of the pianos and, and then he starts Betty's playing that really there. beautiful melody and Betty comes and starts joining in and that was in the script apparently. Okay. Um, and he knew and, um, Yared thought, it was like, well, I think it'd be interesting if they played one of the themes of the film. Well, one day... In the afternoon came to me Jean-Hugues Anglade and Beatrice Dahl, the two actors who, the character Betty and Zorg. They came to my place and so I told them, listen, I have to write something for you and I would like to know at least if you, you play piano. At the time, Jean-Hugues was studying piano and the piece he was studying at the time was a piece by Debussy from a book called Children's Corner. The piece itself, the name was Dr. Gradis at Parnassum, and it goes like this. Etc. So he knew that. That's fantastic, that's already a clue. Then I told to Beatrice, what, what do you play? And she, she replied, que dalle. Que dalle in French means, is her name dal, but que dalle means nothing, absolutely nothing. I said, can you play with one finger? She said, yeah, I can play with one finger. So I said, can you play this? She said, yeah, of course. And she hammered the piano, boom, boom, boom. Like. That's all. And we had a glass together and we, we, we had, you know, some dis conversations like that. And then they went, they went. So I took those two clues I had. She can play one finger, he can play something a little more elaborated. But in order to stay in his fingering and in his, you know, in his possibilities, 
I tried to get as much closer as much closer to 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 Debussy. I remind you, it was. So I wrote for him this. And he repeats all the time. And when she comes, he's playing. She plays. Just a scale. Now it's more difficult. And then I wanted her to play the blue note. That's it. And then when I, of course, I played with the guitar, it goes It becomes different. That's the story. What is that noise? That's not Christian. <laughs> and I've just been kind of obsessed with that thought process since learning that. And it, it, I love, too, that it was something the director was passionate about, that he didn't want to chime in that music later like he actually had the actors play the music in those scenes or the saxophone yeah. guy he had him playing the music and that I, that guy played the same song all day long imagine it was the only song he knew <laughs> right he was getting better at it too i think does he practice yeah um so i just i wanted to talk about that and i'll probably play the clip of gabriel yard telling the telling that story because he, nice. he explains it in english um, you know, and I just thought that was really beautiful. And he, um, uh, Jean-Hugh Anglade, who plays Zorg, he talks about to this day that it's something that's so ingrained in him that he, whenever there's a pa piano nearby, he starts playing the theme from Betty Blue because he, nice. it's, it's the only thing he knows how to play, but it's, <laughs> it's something he's never forgotten. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the pianos, there was one, uh, little piece that I really liked, um, how, when they first, opened up their piano shop that wasn't that was his friend's mom's and he's yeah. like okay these are mine now to sell um, he he opens them all up and he said these need to be open uh, i'm gonna ba badly paraphrase that a closed piano is a dead piano and we want them to be alive yeah yeah and then after betty after he's uh, again spoiler alert smothers Betty to death he goes back home and there's a, a shot of him walking through shutting each mm -hmm. of the pianos as he goes through like the the pianos are dead now the the music's dead now the art's dead now what you know Betty's dead now <laughs> yeah and that ending like was so sad for me because it was not only the fact that he was the one to kill Betty but then it was so sad because it's like I kept thinking it's like if you would have been a little more intentive, maybe she wouldn't have gotten this bad. And also that this was the this is what you thought would be best. Like it seems like they know each other on such a superficial level that I, yes, does yeah. Betty have family? Like right? who knows? You just you robbed these people of this. 
And it is. Like, it, it, it also makes the ending, the ending of him sitting there writing with the cat that talks like Betty so much sadder, too, because it's like, here you are moving on, and she never got the chance to. Yeah. No, it... it like, I, by the end of the film, I really did not like Zorg, and I, I found myself liking him through, through a good portion of the film. Yeah. But by the end, it's like, you're not a good person. I, I think that's the right takeaway. Like, I think that was, it, without knowing for sure, I'm, I'm guessing, but that felt like the intention of the film to me. Um, is not necessarily that everybody should dislike him, but that, uh, that he is a dislikable person um, who uh, was in a very, they were both in a very problematic relationship. Yeah. They don't know what love is. They just do as they're told. And actually, Paul, who suggested this, he him, him and his girlfriend Ramona watched this film a couple times together, and they were both would joke that Zorg seems so comfortable dressed as a woman that he should just do that all the time and go rob banks. It was such a weird story point that, again, I, I suspect there's more in there. I think, yeah. there, and and probably there's more in the movie, but I bet there's even more in the in the book. Or I hope that there's more in the book. Interesting to like it, that to that dissect hit, from that. At the but same time, I'll oh, continue. Continue. There was my story. nothing up until that point about about robbery or needing money. I mean, there's a couple of comments, but they were never struggling. No, there certainly was nothing with that would have led up to the. And, and it had it just been within the context of the robbery, I would say it's just a silly, <laughs> um, just a, a silly plot point. But the fact that he then goes to the hospital to see Betty in the same outfit, like there's more to that. Yeah, and he's like sashaying his hips and yeah. everything. He's well, very comfortable. And and when he shows her the money that he found, quote unquote. Um, She's like, what's this? She finds his outfit mm-hmm. and says, put it on. Put it, and he kind of like, just, like, he's focused on the money, and now, now I can help you, mm-hmm. which isn't what she needs. Um, she never asked for money. She never wanted money. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's something more to that that I would be really interested yeah. in exploring. Weirdly enough, though, it hit me on a very personal level because it, I when back when I worked at, at uh, one of my previous jobs, um, I don't know if I should say their name. I don't know. Um, I there was a robbery that happened. In, it was fucking. It was at Target. <laughs> uh, it was a robbery that happened, and in the electronics department. And I remember I had switched my shift that day, so I wasn't the person who had to work electronics. Um, and the person a person came in dressed as a woman. And asked the the clerk back there to fill and uh, fill this pillowcase full of iPads, and then showed a gun to show that she he was serious. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the proper pronouns because I don't know, you know, what if their preferred disguise right. or what. But right. Um, right. And then I said I, I asked the person later on. It's like, uh, you know, the 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 woman who had to deal with this, and I was like, did it seem like this was a disguise? And she goes, no. They were walking in heels very comfortably. And I was like, oh, this just adds a whole new layer of intrigue to this situation. Yeah. And then when that scene happened, I'm like, oh, fuck. 
it's <laughs> happening again. I don't know. Flashbacks. I had a weird sense memory when that scene happened. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's. Do you have anything else you want to talk I, about when it came to Betty um, I I had one quick comment that I wanted to make that I thought you'd appreciate. Um, so uh, Rain and I have been watching Columbo. Nice. Um, and there was and there was just one thing that I just I had to say. Um, uh, in one of the episodes we saw the other night, um, I thought of you was a very young pre-Halloween Jamie Lee Curtis. What? <laughs> yep. Little baby Curtis. Yep. As a as a waitress, I think the episode came out a year before Halloween did. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I love seeing situations of you know before they were them or shit. right like, right i've been watching old she episodes had like of two lines zone. and yeah, oh I've twilight been, zone i've been watching old episodes of the twilight zone and people like faces will pop like roddy mcdowell popped up in an episode and it was be- <laughs> I, before like planet of the apes and when i knew him and everything so yeah. he, was, he was acting but he wasn't i don't think he was a big name yet and i was like oh shit that's roddy mcdowell and, and there's the two amazing shatner episodes <laughs> yep yep can't forget the shatner episodes <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I guess I'll run through this relatively quickly. So yep. I, 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 I'm going to talk about a title from Vinegar Syndrome. It's, uh, funny enough, Extro 3. So have you ever heard of the movie Extro, Nick? I haven't, but I saw your, your Facebook posting regarding <laughs> yeah, it's it. Yeah, it's a British horror film that I've not seen, and I didn't know they made two sequels, and the director <laughs> wants to make a fourth. Nice. So it feels appropriate that I would just go on, on to Extro 3, just cut through all the bullshit cut you know cut past the jan michael vincent one and just go right to three uh, also the first one he made in america which i found even more interesting okay so the back of the box says a group of military personnel have been assembled to they believe locate and disarm old active explosives which have been left unattended at a former army testing site on a remote island but when they arrive at the deserted island they soon discover that something doesn't seem quite right about their mission and soon enough, they uncover a strange concrete block, which, after accidentally blowing up, unleashes an indestructible, bloodthirsty alien, which, being which, will stop at nothing to kill them. As the survivors band together in order to stay alive and try and find a way to outwit the diabolical creature, they realize that their entire mission might have been a trap, and that the military is using them as pawns in their own vicious plan. The third and most violent entry in the Extro Trilogy... Harry Bromley Davenport's Extra 3, Watch the Skies, moves the setting to Southern California while amping up both the action and the gore through a series of nasty and inventive death scenes. Featured a talented supporting cast featuring Virgil Fry, who was an easy rider and graduation day, Andrew Divoff from Air Force One and Toy Soldiers, Nigel Gibbs from Pump Up the Volume, and Robert Culp from I Spy. And the film was photographed by Irv Goodenough, who film who shot Evil Speak and The Farmer. Vinegar Syndrome presents this underrated slice of 90s action-tinged sci-fi horror on Blu-ray for the very first time, newly restored in 2K from its original 35mm camera negative. A select group of Marines is set for a classified mission. It seems there is an island about 200 miles offshore, uncharted. Everyone simply forgot it existed. They've been told it's critical. Panther! Panther, freeze! Don't touch it! They've been told it's dangerous. But they haven't been told the truth. 
that crash landed in Arizona in 1955. The life form inside the UFO went crazy. It started killing everyone on the island. A United States government cover-up is about to be exposed. Something they tried to hide, something they tried to destroy, is very angry. If you thought it was over, think again. Extra, watch the skies. But the film first starts off really, really weird. You have the worst '90s special, cheap special effects that you could see. That looks like it was made on a video toaster, where it's Earth, and then there's a, uh, a spaceship crashing towards the Earth, <laughs> and then it cuts into like. 1950s newsreel footage about a young boy who dis- who sees who sees uh, he shot some home movies and saw the spaceship crashing to earth and sold it to the news and then it hard cuts to him being like I made the whole thing up and his parents are like yes he made the whole thing up and I was like well that's fucking strange and then we start getting being introduced to these soldiers and it feels and it feels very much like a um getting the band back together type movie. We're on a mission from God. It's this, this military guy who, who t- taught these soldiers and they're all terrible soldiers. They're all, he's like, well, you know, if you want me to go do this mission, why these people? You know, these are terrible soldiers. And you find out later on that they're, they're, they're taking the worst soldiers to this island to get rid of them or some shit. Uh, and it becomes kind of like a predator knockoff where it's, you know, like something's going on in the woods and you have these soldiers out there trying to fight against it. Uh, I thought the film wasn't bad. It was kind of fun. It, you know, not knowing anything about the extra series and having like this weird predator kind of vibe to it about these soldiers trying to uh, survive. Um, but where the film actually works, you know, they're commenting on the blood and the gore, which I thought was all fine. The film is actually kind of sad. Oh. You find out, like, that the whole reason this alien is trying to kill everyone, spoiler if you've not seen Extra 3, the reason he's trying to kill everyone is because when he crash landed on this earth, they get refueled by the sun. So he crashed in a warmer climate, hoping to refuel his energy, and then also was hoping that the people he'd encounter would be friendly. And said they took him to a base, him and his alien wife or whatever, operated on her and took his unborn child. Oh my god. And now he's out for revenge, and then they sealed him away in this in this thing. So it's like, oh shit, he's the good guy. Right, yeah. <laughs> And the the soldiers find this out and are trying to get the truth out there, but then it becomes like a big military cover-up movie. And I was like, oh, shit, I actually am feeling something for extra on the alien. <laughs> it takes a hard pivot into the X-Files. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? I'm kind of enjoying this film. It's not... And it, uh, I feel like uh, the 90s had a very interesting aesthetic to them. Yeah that um you know it's a lot of characters sitting back and reading comic books and stuff and like kind of like snarky tarantino-esque dialogue and the film is fun it's a breezy 90 minutes and i i you know for not having seen any extra films i kind of enjoyed this (laughs) its own weird way uh like i said i was gonna keep it short uh special features it's newly scanned and restored in 2k from its 35 millimeter original camera negative 
uh, feature it called Winning and Losing, an interview with director Harry Bromley Davenport. This one's funny for the simple fact that as soon as it opens up, he's, he introduces who he is. He's like, I'm a filmmaker. I've made about 12 to 15 films. Most of them are no good. <laughs> he's like, maybe a couple of them are okay. This one in particular, I don't remember much about, but I just watched it the other day. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, you're just... <laughs> no you're fucks it out. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like you're not even pretending like oh this was you know this was you know like other directors would be like oh this movie would have been better for this reason or other reasons and but he was also very honest about like he's like he's like the actors were great such and such was great everything was great i was the common denominator that didn't make it great <laughs> i that, kind of appreciate you if i made it into any like behind you know extra feature dvds that is exactly the tone that my <laughs> interviews will have and then he talks about writing the film and everything and he talks about writing with his writing partner um daryl haney who was one of the actors in the film Okay, and he said they they'd get to they'd go to lunch all the time and just you know Daryl would tell him all these ideas he had and Bromley would be like oh that's a great idea and write them all down. <laughs> but funny enough, the second feature on here is acting like a writer, an interview with writer slash actor Daryl Haney, where he tells <laughs> the other sides of these stories. Where he's like, I was poor, I had no money. Of course, I'd want to go to have lunch with this British guy who's buying me food because it's the only time I got a chance to eat, and I would just <laughs> throw out ideas to him. Um, and then, you know, he told me he wanted to do Extra Park, and I was, like, not super into it, because he, he doesn't explain why, but he's like, I fucking hate Steven Spielberg, and I fucking hate George Lucas. <laughs> but then wow. he also talks about how he lucked into writing Friday the 13th Part 7, and it's like, <laughs> there's these really interesting, weird stories involved in these featurettes that, you know, I think just how funny how fun they are yeah it's 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 a breezy 20 minutes each and i don't know they're they're both of them are pretty funny but i actually kind of like the writer's interview better like how he just kind of looked into writing friday the 13th part seven and i don't know pitch, what i'm doing here <laughs> yeah, his pitch essentially was like it's jason versus carrie and they're like yeah that's a great idea <laughs> um and then there's the original trailer, reversible cover artwork and english subtitles uh as always vinegar syndrome puts out a really nice looking picture I had some issues with the with the the stereo soundtrack. I felt like every, all the talking felt very garbled and mumbled together, and it probably recording, you know, when they're on set. But it, so many times I felt like they were talking with something in front of their mouth. I don't know. Yeah, like the audio was fine, but it surprisingly looked great. You know, I, nice. I was I was having a really good morning watching. <laughs> cool. Okay, so for a quick little wrap up. Um, in the past, you've uh, tried to do a uh, like ask ask the co-hosts like quick little yeah like, I've not done that in a while shit so um, one tri- a, a thought triggered as you were describing that and I'm wondering if you know what your first rated R movie was the first one that I saw the first one I went to the first one that you saw all the way through. Uh, I'll I'll leave that up to you. Okay, so the I don't remember the first one that I saw all the way through. Essentially, when I was given permission to watch a rated R film, but I remember the first one I went to in the theater, and I remember the okay. first one that I kind of watched from a distance when, uh, when my parents didn't realize I was watching it with them. I think that's more of the tone, the the watch from a distance, even though you didn't have permission, kind of thing. The Howard Stern movie, Private Parts. <laughs> 
Excellent. And I remember, like, I was just in the living room playing with my toys or something, and they were watching this movie. And they did probably realize how bad it was, like how the, how much nudity is in that movie. Yeah. Uh, but like early on, there's like boobs or something, and they they tell me to leave the room, and I was like, why? But they're like, take your toys and leave the room, and they never stopped the movie, and I was like. <laughs> Why can't I be out there? And I just kind of like snuck out there and snuck around the tables. And it's the first time I saw boobs. Nice. And it was all like, I just like, but then like, weird enough, private parts, there's raunchy stuff happening, but it's not like, it's not a bad movie. Yeah. And I found myself, even at a young age, being weirdly invested in the story. It's like, oh my God, there's boobs. But then something else is happening. Oh, what's <laughs> happening? And then I, to kind of add on to that, I remember having HBO and Cinemax as a kid. <laughs> and the middle of the night one time, like, when you're, like, you're trying to, like, see nudity late night or right, whatever. Right, right. There was, uh, I can never remember the title of the film. And I, if, I'm sure if I did some digging, I could find it. It was rated R. And I thought every, because of that, mo- because of that moment with Private Parts, I thought every rated R movie was just like a porn. where's the good stuff <laughs> yeah and i put this radar movie on that was about like yeah I, I just saw the term lesbian in the title and i was like that's gonna be good uh and it was actually a this really touching story about this 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 woman who finds her sexuality while living in i think it was just called hell's kitchen or something okay movie. and about this it was an indie drama from the 90s about this woman finding her sexuality while living in new york and I put it on expecting like, to see boobs or something. And there was never any of it. But, like, I, I got engrossed in the story. <laughs> and then, like, there's a point where, like, the, the lead character, who's a female, and she finds out she's gay. She's good friends with a gay guy who ends up getting beat to death on the in the streets of New York. Oh. And I remember I'm sitting in my bed crying <laughs> over this movie that I thought was going to be just boobs and dick. <laughs> That that was so worth the the, the prompt. Um, though I'm I'm gonna split that now into two different answers, uh, given the way the conversation went and given the conversation we had earlier about Betty Blue. Um, so my first rated R movie that I ever saw was Toy Soldiers. Okay, um, I love that movie. I think that's rated R. Um, I was at a friend's house and um my friend's mom let us watch it and when my mom found out that we had watched it she was really upset that i had seen a rated r movie without her permission um but then my first topless scene that i saw in a film was um i was at a sleepover where we were playing like hero quest and shit all night long um but under siege (laughs) with uh uh, it's a steven seagal film i've never seen it I've never seen One a Steven Seagal ones. movie. Oh, well, you're missing out. <laughs> His hair is so slipped back. <laughs> Perfect. So that was your so first was... one. Funny yeah. enough, I, I remember watching Toy Soldiers with my mom, but it didn't have any sex or anything, so all the violence was fine. Yeah, yeah. No, I and think it was definitely a violence-based rating. I'm not here to be name dropping or anything, but I actually made a movie with Sean Astin. You did? Yeah, I never told you, you this. Name years dropper. ago. Years ago, uh, right after film school, Sean Astin was shooting a film called The Surface here in Milwaukee. And my friend at the time, Veronica, she got on that job doing like makeup and costuming. And oh, stuff. nice. 
And I didn't have a job that summer. And she's like, oh, you should just come down to set and hang out with me. And I was like, I can just come down to set and hang out with you. She's like, yeah, they're on a boat all the time. And I just came down and hung out with her a little bit and was just watching how the movie was made. And I met the line producer because I was nice. just hanging out. And he's like, he's like this, this, he used to be a cop and he's like this Southern guy, but he's really cool. He's like, he's like who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm Veronica's friend. I'm just here watching. He's like, he's like, well, I can't just have you around here watching. I was like, well, I'm not going to do anything. And he's, he's like, I could help. He's like, I especially can't have you helping. He's like, why not? It's free help. He's like, he's like, this is a union picture, kid. I can't have you on here helping and not pay you something. He's like, well, you don't have to pay me much. He's like, he's like, well, let me see what I can do. And I got really underpaid on this job. I did, yeah. I, I did it for two, three, maybe four weeks. I got paid 200 bucks. <laughs> to give you a frame of reference, a lot of people are getting two hundred dollars a day. <laughs> right. I, I would imagine at the time that might have been the non-union minimum that you have to pay somebody who's not in the union but on a union yeah. picture. Yeah, and you know, and I, I got I originally started on as a PA, and I eventually worked myself up to the art department, and by the end of it, I was the assistant to the art director. Oh, geez. Like, if you see the film, my handwriting is in the film, because they, I, <laughs> I need to put make props and stuff. Wow. Um, but Sean Astin was on the film. Him and Chris Mulkey, if you're familiar with Chris Mulkey. Uh, I'm not. Uh, he's been in a lot of... He's he's one of those... He's one of, If you look up his, his, his look up his picture, he's very much a that guy actor. He's like, oh, that guy! He, oh, he, okay. he was eventually in Twin Peaks. He was in the first Purge movie. He's very much a that guy actor, really sweet guy. I liked him a lot because during lunch, he'd always come hang out with the PAs and sit and eat with us. Oh, that guy. Yeah, see, that's Chris <laughs> Mulkey. Um, so, but Sean Astin was on that film. And, of course, people were always wanting to ask him about Lord of the Rings or Rudy or something. And there was one day the producer brought, because the producer's a local guy, he brought some of his friends over to, like, have, have him talk to his kids about Rudy or whatever. Yeah. And I never spoke to him very much because I was always in, under that ilk. Like, when you're on set, you know, don't fanboy out or whatever. Like, right. I never asked him for a picture until the very last day before rap. Um, but I, you know, Chris Mulkey was a little different because he, he came up to us. He approached us. So that is different. But it's like, Sean, he, he's keeping his distance and everything. Let him be. Right. right. There was one day I, um, I had a couple funny interactions with him. One day I was at craft service table and I saw him coming. So I moved out the way and let him eat first. And he saw my Homer Simpson tattoo. And he's like, you have a Homer Simpson tattoo? And I was like, yeah. He's like, the Simpsons? Really? And like, I, I knew he was kind of busting my balls. And I was like, I couldn't just take it. So I was like, you're just upset that they had someone else voice you on the show. <laughs> and he just kind of like went <laughs> and walked away. <laughs> but then there was one day, we were on a boat all day. And I'm on his boat. And uh, no one's talking to him. And I just, you know, at the time, The Strain was on television. If you remember that show that Guillermo del Toro had produced. And I said, hey. I didn't watch it, but I But I was like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I thought what you were doing in The Strain was really good. You know, I'd commented him on something like that. Um, But uh, he's like, oh, thank you. He's like, but if I had to admit my favorite movie that you've ever done was Toy Soldiers. And he's like, he's like, on this entire film, no one's even brought up that film. (laughs) <laughs> and then he starts talking to me. He opens up to me and starts t- telling me about like the fact that his, you know, you know, telling me about growing up in the limelight because his dad was Gomez Adams and shit. And 
um, uh, and then how he won an Academy Award for a short film when he was a teenager. <laughs> and he said it can be tough because he's like, I hear I thought I was going to become like a, a big name filmmaker and it didn't work out. And, you know, I found a different path. And he was just being really open and honest with me. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm nice. talking about filmmaking with Sean Astin. <laughs> so, but he, I just wanted to mention that I, uh, everyone else was talking about Lord of the Rings. And I was like, Toy Soldiers is the bomb. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, so that's my uh, Sean Astin story. <laughs> They're you're just mad because they didn't get you to once. <laughs> All right. Um, but yet, you know who did voice himself on The Simpsons? But Butch Patrick. Butch. <laughs> he was on The Simpsons. Yeah, he played himself. Oh, awesome! It's the it's the quintuplets episode where a poo. Well, there's a couple quintuplets episodes, but it's the episode where Pooh and Nanjula first have them, and they kind of like sell them to like a zoo. <laughs> and Butch Patrick is like there to teach them about how you can live a normal life after being a child celebrity. <laughs> why are you still dressed like Eddie Munster? Because I'm under a contract or some shit. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I guess I really... Re- I would recommend people check out Betty Blue. And if you're yeah. not down with that, I've got two words for you. Uh, what are those two words? Watch, Watch movies! movies. <laughs> the Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Eastern Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Viers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Villani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Viers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below.